Hey folks, welcome to the House of Kraus. I'm Richard Kraus. You have picked an exceptional day to be here. Every day is pretty cool around the House of Kraus, I have to say, but some days are just a little cooler than others, and this is one of them. We have two guests, the filmmaker and subject of a new documentary called Gimme Danger. Jim Jarmusch, the director, and Iggy Pop, who is the subject as the singer of The Stooges. Now, by 1973, Iggy and the Stooges had imploded, leaving behind three commercially unsuccessful records and kind of a slug trail of decadence and unfulfilled expectations across two continents. In Gimme Danger, Jim Jarmusch has a look at the life, death, and influences of the Stooges in a first-hand account of what the director calls the greatest rock and roll band ever. Now, if you don't know about the Stooges, you should probably turn this off right now, go down to wherever it is that you find music, and check out albums like their self-titled debut, Fun House, Raw Power. There's lots of stuff out there for you to listen to. Listen to it, learn to love it, and then come back and listen to Iggy talking about it. Because the Stooges story is really the stuff of rock and roll legend. Jim Osterberg, that's Iggy's real name, started his musical career as a drummer in Ann Arbor uh, garage rock bands like the Iguanas and the Prime Movers, but switched from drums to frontmen when he says in the film that he got tired of looking at people's bums. As a singer, he formed an avant-garde rock band originally known as the Psychedelic Stooges, and then they did early experiments with homemade instruments like rigged up vacuum cleaners and oil drums, which led to a more streamlined, although not commercial sound, uh, that is now seen as the sound that helped birth punk rock. Iggy and Jim talk about the making of the film and lots of other stuff. This is pretty good stuff. If you're an Iggy Pop fan, if you're a Stooges fan, you'll want to hang around and listen. You have been friends for 20 years, a little over 20 years. At what point did you decide to work together professionally on this film? <laughs> on this film? Yeah. Uh, I asked him. Yeah. I just said, hey, would you make a movie about the Stooges? And he said, oh, okay. And that, that was, was about a, seven years yeah, ago. Right. Like it was that. about seven, eight years ago. Yeah. Yeah. And the music of the Stooges changed things for you. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, I'm from a suburb of Akron, Ohio, so I'm from a kind of also sort of post-industrial world. And... Uh, for me, when I was young, you know, my the things that spoke to me were the Stooges, the the MC5, and then the the light from the East was like the Velvet Underground. Mm -hmm. um, I was a you know I, I I loved Jimi Hendrix and I listened to the Buffalo Springfield West Coast that kind of stuff. But the stuff that spoke right to me was that. Uh, really the Detroit stuff, you know? So I don't know, it's just ingrained. It's part of my DNA, you know? It was a gift to me. So that was big, big inspiration, you know? That kind of sound was very different. The guys were asked, why did you want a Stooges movie to exist? We've been fully Stooged as in terms of concert films. There are four major ones, two with each version of the band. Uh, but we hadn't been covered from the perspective of life by a proper auteur. So I knew that if I could swing that, 
there was going to be a viewpoint that was going to be much better and greater than if you've got a bunch of guys in a band or and their uh, corporate handler going, okay, well now what we want to get across here is, you know, or whatever. That was the idea. Give it to a Give it to somebody with their own vision who, who knows how to make a, a movie. Then the guys were asked, if there's any messages in here for new bands, what will young bands learn from this documentary? I, I don't think it's about learning. Usually it's about hope. Hope and uh, also, I, I remember for me, identification. Like I would listen to Bo Diddley and I knew, that, okay, there were intricacies in Bo Diddley and strengths that I was never going to approach those things. But there were also touch points of simplicity and a mountainous heroism. It's Bo Diddley. And for me, I, I knew, you know, that um, many years after his heyday, I would run into to Bo Diddley on an airplane or something, and he was still Bo Diddley. He still, you know, he didn't have the society behind him, but he still had his hat, his sheriff's badge, his roll bag, and he was Bo Diddley. He kept calling me Ziggy, though. <laughs> I was really, so Ziggy, I got an idea for a rock and roll vampire film. <laughs> You know, so, so I, I think it would be, it's kind of like that, you know. I, I, I meet young musicians who say, well, yeah, you know, just listening to your stuff, it made us feel like it wasn't so far away. We could do it. We didn't want to do what you do, but we could do it. I think, I think there's some of that, you know. Can I say something, too, on that? And, and Bo Diddley's a great example. Um, for me, the film's not trying to teach anybody anything. It's celebrating something, a gift, you know, of, that the Stooges gave us. But to me, you know, this idea of Bo Diddley's a great example because when Ron Ashton died, I read a little obituary in Guitar Player magazine that was respectful of his impact, but a little bit snooty about his primitive technique, right? Mm -hmm. Well, technique is, when you make your own technique, like Bo Diddley, for right. example, to me, that's where, I mean, okay, proficiency can be a path to something, and it can be a path to nothing. Mm -hmm. And if, when you find your own technique, and the, the Ron Ashtons of the world, these are people that give you their own way of doing it, and because they, something comes out of their soul. And to me, that's the... There are millions of kids in their bedrooms that can shred their way to hell on a guitar, and it doesn't mean anything, you know? So that's what I think you can learn, is it comes from somewhere that is about expression, not about showing off or, or following the mainstream of what is technique. And nothing against technically proficient musicians, but it's what you do with it, and Bo Diddley, he made up his own whole fucking beat, his own rhythm. I mean, and he is one of the greatest gifts for me too, Bo Diddley, you know. As unlikely as it seems, Clarabelle the Clown from the Howdy Doody Show was a major influence on Iggy Pop. It was like this. I was living with my mom and dad in a, a trailer. It was not any longer than from where I am to where you are. And 
I slept on the shelf above the kitchenette, and I would lay there sometimes, and they'd let me watch Howdy Doody, and I'd watch it on a TV. It was about this deep, and the screen's about that big, black and white. And uh, first there was Buffalo Bob, right, who looked just like Timothy Leary. It was the same thing. It was the buckskin fringe jacket and the affable, hi, kids, you know, and then the kids would go, ah! Ah! It was like full assault, right? And then he would always say, no cracks from the PETA gallery. That was the thing to calm him down. And then he had these various people, Phineas T. Bluster was like the Donald Trump of the program, right? The mean old guy with a, like an authority and money and everything. And then there was Clarabelle the Clown. And Clarabelle would come tear ass out and he was totally like, yeah. And he was like manic, you know. And I was watching him and Howdy Doody was supposed to be the star, but he just sat there, you know, because he was a puppet. All he could do was roll his, his head. But Clarabelle, I thought, wow, that's ex that, it was exciting. I liked the mania in Clarabelle. I really did. And I didn't realize till I saw him in this film years later, just how, I mean, that's an insane performance. It was, it was physically reckless. He's, and I learned some, I think it might have been Ariel who told me that's Bob Keeshan. It was Captain Kangaroo. <laughs> yeah, if what happened, I guess there's not as much money in being Clarabelle. <laughs> and later if you're like, just take a couple of Valium, <laughs> right? Calm down, right? Hi, Mr. Green Jeans. Hi, Captain Kangaroo. Everything's cool. <laughs> we got a steady gig here. <laughs> That's that, but I really, the show made a, it was my first show where I ever saw where okay, this is how the audience is, and this is the MC, and these are the characters, and, you know, yeah. In this clip, Iggy talks about the dual influences of jazz music and Bo Diddley. With Bo, if you, if you scour closely interviews with the two best white interpreters living of black guitar music, who still are Keith Richards and Ron Wood, that you'll find you'll find quotes about the intricacy and delicacy of his playing. That's one part, right? Uh, or if you listen to the Stones cover of Mona, how Keith Richards approaches a little more romantic take of Bo's things. That's one side. The other side is Bo had the simple approach, the simple framework, just the Bo and the and the girls with the guitars and wow, you know, okay. When I heard the Love Supreme, Coltrane is a great enough and secure enough musician that at that point in his career, he was able to base a whole composition on a four note bass line that I could play before I even learned guitar. Just And you had this with Pharaoh Sanders. You had this with a certain period when Miles Davis got sick of doing three-piece suit music, and he started dressing a little looser, and you hear albums like Jack Johnson, On the Corner, Bitches Brew, whoa. You know, again, I thought, well, wow, with a loose framework, Archie Shepp, 
there are a lot, there's a lot you can do, and maybe we could adapt some of the spirit of this music. Uh, and then also you just listen to the, the elegance and the, the way those guys played. It, it's spiritual music. It's spiritual music. It, it reaches up and out to no one in particular, but to another place. You know, that's, that's what I would say. I think it inspired us. Just, and it was amazing that the other three guys in the group, I mean, I never heard, I, I brought these records to them. I never heard, I don't want to listen to that jazz. They were all instantly receptive to the musicality of anything I brought them, anything. I don't know why, it's just the kind of way, oh, oh okay, you know, when you, you hear it, and some of the uh, openness of the first two records. The third record is different. That's a very, uh, that's sort of a, a rock permutation. Several times during the press conference, Iggy became noticeably emotional when he talked about some of his former band members, some of whom aren't with us anymore. When he was asked about the reunion, was this a chance to get some of the recognition that was perhaps denied the band on their first kind of disastrous go-round? He got emotional and talked about it. Yeah, it was huge. And uh, for some reason, uh, it still dredges up uh, certain emotions that had to do with the I would say the unprecedented aggressive rejection of the group in its early stages. We had we had allies with these the stoner youth. Kids sixteen, seventeen in high school were already destined to drop out, tended to like us, and intellectuals, the ones that very, 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 the very, very, very group liked us, and uh, not not many people in the in the middle. And every once in a while, we would have a, an important ally, especially like the MC5. You know, so it's a group that could they could do they could do what a show band does, and yet they understood what we were doing and were happy to have us augment their shows. And uh, also there was a guy at the Psychedelic Ballroom, Russ Gibb, who kind of thought we were interesting. And I, I think it helped at that level. Alice Cooper said of me that I was a gimmick for the group. That's kind of true. He said, well, you know, you need a gimmick, and Iggy was their gimmick. I, well, he I, did a damn good job. Well, yeah, right, exactly, exactly. But I fulfilled probably some of that for some people, to at least enough to get us a gig, you know. So, yeah, it meant a, it meant a lot, uh, it, but it would only come up certain ways, maybe if I'm asked a question as direct as that in a setting like this, or just in certain ways at certain times. It was amazing. Amazing. In this clip, Iggy talks about his billing over the band and whether that was intentional or not. Right from the get-go, 
you had some people who liked the whole group. And then you had a whole lot of other people who would say or write or still give interviews to the effect, well, you know, really the whole thing was this guy Iggy doing this thing and the group is just a bunch of these, which wasn't true. Then that would start to translate to <clears throat> reviews and then of course the fellas in the group would see the review or, or comments about our show and then there would, in the early group, I would wake up the next morning and there would be a writing, literally, on the wall. See Iggy. See him puke. See him shit green. See him jump. Jump, Iggy, jump, etc., etc. So these, these things started coming up. And the next thing that happened was, little by little, the people would make a poster to advertise. I mean, we're talking about a VFW dance where 200 people are going to come. It's like, the Stooges, with Iggy, a show you won't forget, and on and on, and then that, and then we'd bonk that down, but it kept coming out. Then when our first album came out, they called me first and said, would you mind being Iggy Stooges? I said, yeah, I fucking mind. I don't want to be, you know, I don't, this is not Alice Cooper. And uh, so when they, at that time, I'm not a guy, I wasn't coming from like, Okay, I've got a manager. I've got a plan. I just a kid from the Midwest. I would walk to the record store, two miles into town, every Tuesday. I think it was the the, the day the records came out for three months, waiting for our record to come out. And finally, one day, it was late August. There it was in the window. That's our record. There it is in the record store where I used to work, and I was so excited. I ran in there and I got it, and then I turned it over. And I was Iggy Stooge. They were doing the product identification with me, and I was humiliated and furious, and I couldn't do anything about it. Later, little by little, we would play the film. We would go far from Detroit. We'd play the Fillmore, and they'd just bill it, Iggy and the Stooges. Finally, when I got the second part of the thing with Main Man, uh, for the second coming of the Stooges, the actual very widely reported on gig, the one gig we did and where apparently everybody who was going to start a punk band came, was actually billed as Iggy Pop, ex-Iggy of the Stooges, ex-Stooges. They kept trying to whack us down, and it was more the everyday thing. Again... My apologies, I misunderstood. You're talking yeah. about the whole main man, Tony DeFries yeah. thing. My, my apologies. The billing on Raw Power, the same thing. Nobody told me the album was going to come out. Nobody told me it was... To me, it was just simple. It's like when you go to the Hall of Fame, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and you say, okay, great, so all ten of the guys that were... Oh, no, 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 no. No, 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 no. We'll decide who you are. And so you make that compromise with them. But before, they, they didn't... They didn't dare do that with me, so they just do it behind my back. So eventually it was Iggy and the Stooges. So you've got a little dichotomy set up there. On the other hand, uh, was I the guy who bothered to actually go out of Detroit with no pennies in my pocket and try to get a gig? Yeah. Was I the guy who went and chatted up the local promoters, yeah. 
Was I the guy who would bother to answer the phone? Yeah. So, you know. Uh, but finally, as far as the final thing, the group at the end, about 74, I was a mess. The internal feelings with the group was a mess. I didn't want to be in the group anymore as that existed and it wasn't going to be the same. At that point, the guitarist in the group wanted to formalize the group's positions. He, he drew up a contract. It would have prohibited me from ever working with anybody else. It would have given a half share to the Ashtons who refused. No, so. I ended up uh, doing solo work. I did a, for the same guitarist, James, I did a very good job, I think, fronting his songs on Kill, the Kill City thing. And then uh, when David Bowie, who, who I'd known for quite a while, came up with some music that I thought suited me and offered to make a record on me, I said, let's do it. Because there was... So then that was a but that was a clean break. I wasn't in the group. I was always in the group and I was always sort of like, let's face it, okay, on the one hand there's this guy unwilling to be Caesar. <laughs> All right? But on the other hand, he's jumping up and down with a pair of Soho underpants on and you know, and and strangling himself with the mic cord and all right. I don't know, are these, I never thought of them as attention-getting gestures. I, I didn't, right? Okay, but there you go. How's that for an answer? All right? Once again, Iggy gets a little emotional as he talks about the Stooges' comeback and how the members of the band, past and present, all graduated with honors. I was happy in a in a terrible way i was happy that during the the group i put almost eight years into the original group and i put about 12 into the comeback and i would rather call it a, a reunion i think of a bunch of okay we'll get together and do some gigs we won't make any albums because it might sully our <laughs> our preciousness no we had a fucking comeback and that was another 12 years and during that 12 years the whole repertoire was covered, all three albums, you know, and James was able to come in and do his bit only because Ron passed away, but still, you know, and uh, every member of the group during the 12-year period and our sidemen graduated with honors, meaning when they went... When they passed away, they had houses, money, and bad habits. <laughs> these, are the, these are the three things a rock star is supposed to have. So they got their rock, their, their recognition, all right? That's how I feel about it. Well, that's it. That's all for the House of Krauss this week. That was Jim Jarmusch and the legendary Iggy Pop talking about the movie Gimme Danger. 
Iggy tells the tale. He's a rock and roll survivor who surprisingly outlived most of his band and most of his contemporaries. He's eloquent. He's funny, as we just heard, and he's got a surprisingly good memory for a 69-year-old who lived on the edge for most of his life. You can find Gimme Danger playing at a theater near you somewhere. Check it out. Before you do that, though, if you haven't already, listen to the self-titled debut album, listen to Funhouse, listen to Raw Power, and uh, bask in the glory that is Iggy and the Stooges. Right now, though, you got to get out of here. The House of Kraus is closed for another week. Please come by and see us next Monday. We put a new show up every single week. You never know who's going to stop by for a visit. And who knows? It might be one of your favorite people. 